Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audio books whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. Chapter 6. Music for Jesus. Lyrics of Freedom. As he visited the campfires of his black troops during the Civil War, Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson was startled by the flower of poetry and potency of their songs. He found time to write down lyrics for three dozen songs that were to the men more than a source of relaxation. They were a stimulus to courage and a tie to heaven. Behind the gentle words in praise of God lurked the spiritual armor of people long at war with oppression. After the war, the Reverend Mr. Higginson published his notes and tried to describe the gripping power and meaning of the melodies he had heard. The music that captivated Higginson later conquered the world stage as the blues, jazz, and rock. These songs from the battlefield were unlike any other American music. The white Protestant hymns and evangelical melodies of the day did not approach the complex rhythms syncopation, and particularly the call and response and spontaneity of African-American music. Soloists sang a dialogue with or blended into a chorus that represented the congregation. Together, they created intricate patterns Europeans never tried. Lacking training in European music, Africans were not bound by its structure and restrictions. Flexible voices casually altered lyrics and sounds to produce what one critic called an improvisational communal consciousness. In 1845, a white traveler wrote, The blacks themselves leave out old stanzas and introduce new ones at pleasure. Traveling through the South, you may, in passing from Virginia to Louisiana, hear the same tune a hundred times, but seldom the same words accompanying it. Beginning with the banning of the drum as an instrument of communication, slaveholders tried to set boundaries for African culture. But the songs, folk tales, and religious experience of African Americans demonstrated that masters could never stifle black vitality, creativity, and community. The words and music of black songs not only lifted spirits and ignited hope, but sounded a call to a bright new day. 
the stark, haunting beauty of slave songs conveyed an immediate sense of community sharing and expression and bonded individuals with neighbors. It is one of history's great ironies that Christianity, the Bible, and the words of Christ would eagerly be grasped by both slaves and slaveholders. For one, religion, the book, and the words justified a profitable system. For the other, they would cast a curse on bondage and offer faith and deliverance from tears and chains. Over the meaning of Christianity, slave and master carried on a political debate about liberty and justice. Africans first met evangelical Christians as captors on the slave ships of the Atlantic. In the Americas, Protestant ministers called the Africans heathens in need of salvation and began the process of conversion. Hoping Christian baptism might lead to liberty or an easing of slavery's burdens, African Americans embraced the unfamiliar divinities. Worried lest a black stampede to church might undermine the system, in the 17th century, a Virginia court ruled, baptism of slaves doth not exempt them from bondage. Those in chains found in Christian spirit both inspiration and solace during a life of bondage. In the Bible, African Americans found a God who favored retribution, a Jesus who died to save humanity, and a Moses who led Hebrew people out of slavery. Surrounded by white demons and separated from home by a 3,000-mile ocean, African Americans prayed their caring God might again part the waves of the Red Sea for his chosen people. Owners approached conversion of their slaves with distinct goals. They aimed to turn resistance to docility and replace flight and sabotage with increased production. Laborers would be taught to obey masters and overseers and seek justice in heaven. To this end, the Bible and Christian worship were shaped into a propaganda for conformity. Some whites doubted that Christian teachings could reform blacks and others resented the cost and time of this religious experiment. How would slave congregations interpret Baptist and Methodist messages of spiritual equality? Would instruction in Christian piety and ethics raise questions about slaveholders being entitled to enter heaven? Could Christianity, in the hands of the oppressed, prove a double-edged sword? These nagging questions were debated among whites until emancipation. But an enthusiastic faith in Christianity carried the day. A rebellious, obstinate race, it argued, would become obedient servants. A savage people would be filled with awe of God and respect for his earthly rulers. To ensure success for their gospel, masters selected trusted ministers, and laws required whites be present at all religious gatherings. In Latin America, a powerful Catholic church pressured slave owners and governments, and finally, won reforms. In the United States, a Protestant church, fragmented into many separate denominations, proved too weak to challenge the South's powerful ruling class. Slaveholders paid the local clergy and commanded their obedience. The few pious men of God who questioned the gospel of slavery were soon silenced, fired, 
or driven away. In Bishop Meade's sermons, slaveholders found the dogma they sought. He urged black congregants, Do all service for your masters and mistresses here on earth, as if you did it for God himself. The bishop said God was the highest slaveholder. Poor creatures, you little consider when you are idle and neglectful of your master's business, when you steal and waste and hurt any of their substance, when you are saucy and impudent, when you are telling lies and deceiving them, or when you prove stubborn and sullen and will not do the work you are set about without stripes and vexation. You do not consider, I say, that what faults you are guilty of towards your masters and mistresses are faults done against God himself, who hath set your masters and mistresses over you in his own stead, and expects that you would do for them just as you would do for him. And pray, do not think I want to deceive you when I tell you that your masters and mistresses are God's overseers, and that if you are faulty towards them, God himself will punish you severely for it in the next world. Whites wanted to believe their version of the gospel was having its desired impact on the African-American community. Advertisements for sales and auctions stressed the Christian character of the slaves, suggesting they were cowed, docile servants who would never flee from, lie to, or reject white orders. Frederick Douglass met many slaves who are under the delusion that God required them to submit to slavery and to wear their chains with meekness and humility. Others challenged the new ideas. This is the way it go, recalled West Turner of Virginia. Be nice to Martha and Mrs. Don't be mean. Be obedient and work hard. That was all the Sunday school lesson they taught. John Thompson angrily described ministers he heard as God in the face and the devil in the heart. Submission to God was one thing, said a slave mother, but submission to the machinations of Satan was quite another. Most slaves still enjoyed their time in church as a relief from work offering cultural and religious satisfactions. Some congregants dared to challenge white ministers. Beverly Jones told how an Uncle Silas stood up and asked Preacher Johnson of Virginia, Is us slaves going to be free in heaven? When the preacher refused to respond, Uncle Silas stood and repeated his question again and again. After that service, Uncle Silas never returned to church. African-American Christianity demanded its own gospel, and many slave communities began their own secret churches. There, Christianity was interpreted not by white preachers, but by congregations. One slave remembered, when they wanted to sing and pray, they would steal off into the woods. Whipping did not stop them from having meetings. When one place was located, they would find another. Some groups just found a thicket to hide in and pray for deliverance. Masters feared the spread of this independent Christian worship and dispatched the dreaded patty rollers to break up meetings.
posses scoured the countryside, searching for illegal worship services, looking for trouble, and hoping for violence. Wes Turner told how his flock ran grapevines across paths to trip mounted paddy rollers. A white patrol finally located and attacked Turner and his church in the woods. A patroller yelled, You ain't got no time to serve God. We bought you to serve us. Many congregations managed to survive assaults and reopen churches. The Bible continued to breathe strength into their struggle and to lift their daily burdens. Their hymns were rarely sorrowful or tearful, for they had to raise spirits. The most common lyrical image selected by African-American congregations was that of the chosen people, a celebration of pride, survival, and humanity. Congregations compose such lyrics as, We are the people of God, the people that is born of God, and we are the people of the Lord. Away from the ears of their enemies, people told of slaveholders who could not reach heaven, but to the promised land I'm bound to go. Despite the walls erected by their masters, African Americans creatively employed religion, song, and story to tear at the chains that bound them. Biblical heroes and a world struggle for liberty masked the real theme of a coming day of liberation. Much as African Americans shaped the music of the New World, they recast the Europeans' abstract, severe God. Recent scholars have pointed out that African Americans converted God rather than converted to Him. The God worshipped in black churches was as immediate as the gods of Africa. Biblical characters became intimate personal friends or close relatives. One African American song proclaimed, Jesus is my bosom friend. Another announced, I'm going to talk with King Jesus by myself. And still others told about warm, friendly kinfolk, Sister Mary, Brother Moses, and Brother Daniel. This personal God, committed to justice, was willing to drown the Pharaoh's army of slaveholders to save the Hebrew children. So powerful a friend was bound to help his devout followers who had been forced to walk the earth in chains. African Americans sang the praises of a Jesus who could be counted on. One to write to Mass Jesus to send some valiant soldier to turn back Pharaoh's army. Hallelujah. God and Jesus were portrayed as leaders on freedom's battlefield. That was exactly what masters were worried about. As early as 1810, planter Richard Byrd of Virginia informed the governor that slave preachers used their religious meetings as veils for revolutionary schemes. To carry forth a Christianity that provided slaves real comfort and support and yet avoided triggering white fury, black preachers carefully constructed sermons, tales, and lyrics that sounded innocent to white ears. The theme of revolutionary change appeared in spirituals as scriptural references. Were congregations saluting the Holy Spirit or talking treason? Samson threatens, If I had my way, I'd tear the building down. A spiritual about God's powerful voice ringing through heaven and hell concludes, My dungeon shook, and my chains, they fell.
was the past or future being celebrated. Masters and their hand-picked clergymen tried to fasten slaves' attention on heaven's glory rather than today's plight. Black theology invariably preached messages of deliverance. Some whites warned a militant Christianity could lead slaves astray, even toward rebellion. Slave plots often involved, as did an 1816 conspiracy in Camden, South Carolina, respected church members. The famous leaders of 19th century insurrections, Gabriel Prosser, Denmark Vesey, and Nat Turner, were devout Christians, convinced their rage to rebel was divinely inspired. Vesey's plan, recalled one of the conspirators, was about religion, which he would apply to slavery. Another witness testified Vesey read us from the Bible how the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt from bondage. He felt it was imperative to attempt their emancipation, however shocking and bloody might be the consequences. Retribution, Vesey stressed, would be pleasing to the Almighty. In Virginia, Nat Turner, a popular lay preacher, said a black avenging Messiah appeared in a dream to call him to action. God told him to fight against the serpent, for the time was fast approaching when the first should be last and the last should be first. After Turner's defeat, legislatures made slave preaching illegal. No black man ought to be permitted to turn a preacher through the country, the Richmond Inquirer warned. Christian doctrine and devotion to liberty remained intertwined in slave hearts long after Turner's time. In 1839, Mississippians heard many rumors of slave plots and suspicion centered around the itinerant preachers, reported an official. The next year, New Orleans papers complained about a black church it called a den for hatching plots against masters. Seven years later, twelve black worshippers were arrested by police and charged with singing hymns followed by sermons of the most inflammatory character. Christianity inspired Harriet Tubman, hero of the Underground Railroad and liberator of 300 slaves, who said, I must go down, like Moses into Egypt, to lead them out. She spoke with a God who willed freedom and convinced her, according to her biographer, to be ready to kill for freedom if that was necessary and defend the act as her religious right. During her rescue trips, she sang the spiritual, Go Down Moses, to announce her presence to plantation laborers. Slaves called her Moses. Once free, African Americans were able to directly challenge the hypocrisy of Christian masters and pro-slavery doctrines. Anthony Burns, who escaped from slavery in Richmond in 1854, only to be recaptured, heard in prison he was excommunicated by his white Baptist congregation. He defended himself. You charge me that in escaping, I disobeyed God's law. No, indeed. That law which God wrote upon the table of my heart, inspiring the love of freedom and impelling me to seek it at every hazard, I obeyed. And by the good hand of my God upon men, I walked out of the house of bondage. Finally freed, Burns became an ordained minister for fugitive slaves living in Canada.
Christianity inspired northern anti-slavery forces. In 1846, the Reverend Moses Dixon and 11 other African Americans formed the Knights of Tabor, dedicated to strike the blow for liberty. They believed God was with Israel and gave the victory to the bondsmen, though they were opposed by 20 times their number. Our cause is just, and we believe in the justice of the God of Israel and the rights of man. No less than Christianity, the lyrics of secular and spiritual music became a battleground that pitted master against slave. Those songs such as Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child sounded a note of sad resignation. African American music was usually upbeat, looking toward happier days and victories over old foes. In this music, the devil, often a stand-in for the white exploiter, is more comic than powerful, and he can easily be fooled by a clever slave. The devil's mad, and I'm glad. He lost the soul he thought he had. Planters and slaves fought a long tug-of-war for control of the slave's music, its themes, words, and tempo. On her Georgia plantation, Fanny Kemble wrote that many masters and overseers on these plantations prohibit melancholy tunes or words and encourage nothing but cheerful music. Some banned any reference to particular hardships. Masters demanded an accelerated beat in work songs in order to speed up labor in fields or on docks. A Richmond tobacco factory manager explained, We encourage their singing as much as we can, for the boys work better while singing. When whites manipulated the musical tempo to increase production, African-American laborers tried to slow the beat to relieve the strain. Planters also liked slaves to sing so they could check on their location and be sure they hadn't run off. Make a noise, make a noise, overseers ordered slaves, reported Frederick Douglass. Singing by slaves acted like the bell around a cow's neck that always gave its exact location. Slaves sang, but for their own reasons, to raise spirits, to affirm a sense of community, or to set a pace that would accomplish difficult jobs without injuries. When forced to sing, wrote Douglas, black voices often told a tale of grief and sorrow. In the most boisterous outbursts of rapturous sentiment, there was ever a tinge of deep melancholy. Douglas heard the same wailing notes when he visited Ireland during the potato famine. Slaves often used their music as a form of protest against evil people and conditions. In 1774, a white visitor, Nicholas Cresswell, wrote, In their songs, they generally relate the usage they have received from their masters and mistresses in a very satirical style and manner. Douglas remembered nonsense songs in which a sudden, sharp hit was given to the meanness of slaveholders. For people denied any political rights, including a right to speak up. Lyrics in a song could deliver an incisive analysis or criticism. This short jingle offered humor, wit, and insight. My old mistress promised me when she died she'd set me free. She lived so long that her head got bald. 
and she give outen the notion of dying at all. To raise a hand against a white could mean death. To raise a laughing voice in a ditty involved no great risk. Jackass red, jackass pitched, throwed old Mouthful in the ditch. A clear understanding of slave exploitation was conveyed in a popular song about plantation production and distribution. We raise the wheat, they give us the corn. We bake the bread, they give us the crust. We sift the meal, they give us the skin. And that's the way they take us in. Sometimes, songs spread important news. Some lyrics conveyed hidden messages to slaves that whites could not decipher. Steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus. Encourage runaways without warning masters. To tell blacks that one of their number had betrayed them, a song was used. Oh, Judas, he was a seatful man. He went and betrayed a most innocent man. Follow the drinking gourd, voiced love for freedom. The old man is awaiting to carry you to freedom, so follow the drinking gourd. Another stanza detailed directions for runaways, telling them to follow the North Star to Canada. During the Civil War, the approach of the Union Army brought a new defiance to slave songs. No more auction block for me. No more, no more. As Union soldiers drew closer, new lyrics were heard. I want to cross over into campground to that promised land where all is peace. In 1862, Susie King, 12, and her grandmother stood in the Savannah Church fervently singing an old hymn. Yes, we all shall be free when the Lord shall appear. The police rushed in and arrested all who were there, charging them with planning freedom and seeing the Lord when they meant Yankee. Susie King smiled, for she knew freedom was rolling forth like an old spiritual, and neither police nor patty rollers could stop the infectious music. Within months, King was part of her people's liberation, a teacher of reading and writing for former slaves serving as soldiers in the Union Army. As an adult, she wrote an autobiography of her exciting life. All right, so I was sitting here thinking to myself, how do I introduce Dr. Sidney Davis, Jr., who many would say is a controversial figure. I went to your website, and I go, bloody heck. I cannot come up with words to describe Dr. Sidney Davis, Jr., so I'm going to let him do the honors himself. How would you describe yourself, sir? Uh, I would describe myself as a researcher of African and pre-African history. I would describe myself as an activist, a human rights activist. I would describe myself as one who has dedicated his his life and his service to the uplifting 
of the African people, and in particular of the African women, and the renaissance of our people. That would be it in a nutshell. I love that. Now let's talk about your, your, the research component of who you are, because I um, am someone who matriculated through my undergraduate experience and then went into my graduate work. And the part about research is something that I think separates people who are just students and those who are academics, those mm -hmm. who are intellectuals, those who really care about a discipline or a subject. Within your discipline of African history, uh, when you formulate your opinions, when you come up with your ideals, how do you research that? If you said, you know, Africa at such and such a time was a place where people X, Y, and Z. Where do you get your research from? How do you do that? Do you go on Google like most people, or do you actually read books? How do you formulate your research? Well, one does not have to be a scholar or an academic to be a researcher. Uh, one of our greatest master teachers, John Henry Clark, only went up to the eighth grade, and he was the consummate academic or scholar when it comes to African history or pre-African history. One need only to read to become a researcher, to read or to do um, or involve himself in active on the ground research to be a researcher. One does not have to go to school. One does not have to have a degree. Many of our researchers, many of our master teachers are what we would call auto didactic, that is, they taught themselves, they educated themselves by involving themselves in reading various um, um, books, um, literature that expands a wide, vast a range of subjects involved anthropology, social anthropology, history, uh, archaeology, paleontology, um, linguistics, genetics, all of these things. So um, if one would go to my Goodreads, I have a Goodreads uh, library uh, online. If one would go to my Goodreads library, they would see the books that I have read, some of the books that I have read that are part of my library that I have read over the years. So I would define anyone who is a scholar or a researcher, that's, uh, to um, address your question, is one who reads books that reads primary literature, secondary literature, or, you know, uh, or reads um, literature that is original, literature from the people themselves, the, uh, the, the uh, exploring the culture as um, viewed from the eyes of those who are being um, studied. There, you, know, you have those who are outside, outsiders who uh, study Africa, for instance. Um, then you have those who are inside, who are Africans, who um, give their story. And it's, I, I, I take both approaches. I read, I read um, those who, are, who have studied from the outside to get what their observations have been. And I also um, read insiders, the voice of Africans themselves. And I think that reading the voice of Africans themselves is the most crucial aspect of doing research in Africa or on Africa when it comes to history 
or especially its prehistory. Um, I don't know if you were uh, abreast of the recent chokeholding incident in the New York City Police Department uh, with the one individual who ended up dying as a result. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I know something about it, yes. Um, so, in kind of a broad context, since you're aware of that instance, and of course police brutality elsewhere, um, when African Americans are sort of um, in the mix with some of the brutality acts taken upon uh, us as people, and there was another video, another incident, where there was an African American police officer who was caught on video stomping his foot on an African-American's head who was already being detained on the floor by more than two police officers in a video. And the one officer out of rage took his foot with his boot and planted it on someone's head. In, in the new age of, of activism where we are trying to encourage people to speak up and speak out and especially young people to speak up and speak out against these kinds uh, of, of acts, how do you think African-Americans in this day and age should uh, prioritize their activist efforts when not only are we dealing with it in some cases from mm. white police officers, but also from African-American police officers uh, who also take advantage of their positions um, within the confines of the law? Well, what we see here is a, a result of conditioning of our people. And... How one explains an African American police officer being part of the system of oppression against his own people. The best way I could describe it, the best way that I could explain it, you know, it has to, it has a historical um, uh, aspect to it. Malcolm X made a speech called "Message to the Grassroots." And in that speech, he describes the predicament that we see that he saw then and which still obtains now between what is happening within our own community and what is happening um, with the oppression that is taking place from those outside of our community, those who are the oppressors. He said that to understand this thing, we have to go back in slavery. And back in slavery, he talks about the house Negro and the field Negro. Are you familiar, familiar with that uh, analogy that he used in that speech? I've heard it before, but because this is an education show, I want to educate those out there who may not have been familiar. So if you can explain it to Well, uh, first I would recommend that you go to YouTube and find the speech and listen to the speech. But in essence, he talks about how we have to contextualize what we see happening in our communities and what we see happening in society today as it, as it, as it affects us as a people, as a black people, as African people. The house Negro was, a, was the slave who lived in the house. He loved his master. He ate his master's food, wore his master's clothes. Um, he did everything for his master to make his master happy because the master would give him favors, as opposed to the field Negro, who was the person who worked in the fields, who worked the tobacco, who worked the cotton, who worked the crops, and who received the backlash, the lash of the master. The field Negro did not 
like his master. He did not love his master. He was not what you would call a happy slave, as opposed to the house Negro who was a happy slave. If a field Negro would go to a house Negro and say, let's escape, let's get out of here, the field Negro would look at him and say, are you crazy? Where can I find a better house than this? Where can I buy? Where can I get better clothes than this? Where can I get um, better food than this? This was what you would call your house Negro. The field Negro hated his master. He would say, let's get out of here. Let's escape. Let's separate from this. Let us um, free ourselves. This was the attitude of the um, field Negro. He did not love his master. He hated his master, whereas the house Negro loved his master and would do everything for his master. So today we have what we call modern field Negroes, and we have modern house Negroes, those Negroes who want to be part of that system because the system gives them the best jobs, gives them the best clothes, gives them the best living, as opposed to those who are uh, uh, against and who are rebelling against the system, most of whom among our people are in prison, most of whom are our people who have, who have been historically rebel, in, um, rebels, those who have rebelled against the system, beginning with... Um, with Nat Turner, with uh, Prosser, and Denmark Bessie, and all these uh, uh, great rebels of our tradition coming up to the modern time with the Black Panthers, with Malcolm X. These would be people that you would call field Negroes as opposed to those who want to assimilate, who want to integrate, who want to be a part of the system, and who believe that the system can work for them, and they feel that um, partaking in that system and then internalizing the values of that system, this is what enables them to feel that they can oppress those who are not a part of that system, whether they are black or whether they are white. So what we see here, we, we see a psychological um, um, uh, event taking place in this brother who, mm -hmm. was, who chokehold one of his own people right. to, to death. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pause you one second. Uh, doctor, uh, I'm just going to pause for one second because I'm going to get back to this, but I am told that we have a caller on the line. And so before we lose the call, I want to give the caller an opportunity to get on. But I do want to come back and we'll talk to this in a second. So for the caller, go ahead, state your name and your question, please. Yeah, this is, uh, my name is Pianki. I'm calling from the Midwest. How are you today? Excellent. You have a question for the doctor? Well, yeah, I was going to ask the doctor. You know, I hear heard him talking about this this land and um, making mention about the because of the Bible, it was promised to uh, this certain people. But from a historical context, why is it that blacks don't talk about the whole story? Because if you go back. To history, chronological history, and we're talking about the Assyrians in the eighth century when they were trying to besiege what's now called Jerusalem. There was no Judaism, of course. If it wasn't a Judaism, there wasn't a Christianity. If it wasn't a Christianity, it wasn't Islam. This fringe group called Yahweh had created this 
Yahweh had created this religion, or should I say this culture, and their deity was Yahweh. And uh, the Assyrians, who was led by Sennacherib, this is a real-life person, was coming down upon this country, this uh, this city, and they was defeated by the Cushites in the 25th dynasty of the Taharqa and, and Shabiko. And it's partially mentioned in the Bible in Second Kings uh, 19 and 35, but they took out the names of these uh, students, these kings, who led the battle and replaced them with the angel of the Lord. So, I mean, if if we can't give if we can't give uh, credit to that historical fact, then all this other, you know, all these other assertions just don't mean anything. I mean, it's sort of like if you have questions on why the buildings came down during nine eleven. How? What legitimized Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, do you get my gist, gist there? I get it. I mean, and this is history. We don't talk about these times. You know, the twenty and and the Cushites guy was Amon. It was not no. Of course, it couldn't have been a Jehovah, but it surely wasn't Yahweh of the first five books. And later on in history. Christians would name the first five books of the Old Testament. These people never named that that. So one would have to ask, why would these Cushites come out of, you know, what was then called Upper Egypt or Northern Sudan, march that far to uh, defeat the Assyrians, Sennacherib, as uh, he was besieging upon uh, Jerusalem. And if, if they hadn't won that battle, None of these religions would exist today. I mean, just think about it. If they had okay. defeated them, there wouldn't have been no Yahweh, because Yahweh was a local god of no importance whatsoever. It wouldn't have been no Yahwehism if it wasn't a Yahwehism, which, quote unquote, the Hebrews adopted later on and turned into Judaism, which turned into Christianity, which turned into Islam. Then that makes David a chance to respond. Yeah, and real quick, that makes this claim with uh, what's going on with Palestine, with these uh, European Jews coming out of uh, Europe to occupy that area. That makes that claim null and void because there was no European area at that time. People say that these was original. What were they before that? I mean, if you understand what I'm saying. Because Amun was the deity of quote unquote Cushites, quote unquote African people, because there's a difference between African and black now. That I mean, we say people that's dark skinned and uh, what's the leader there in uh, Sudan now, northern Sudan? Bashir, Bashir, Bashir don't consider himself African. He considers no, he himself doesn't. yeah. So that's what I'm talking no, about. No, so, he no, he, he considers himself Arab. Don't make make no mistake about that. Right, and they that's skin is dark, skin is and dark. people here people here call it black. See, but that's we right. we use this term black too daggone loosely. That's right. So, uh, what was these people then, and who was they following? It was Cushites, and why would black Cushites march twelve hundred miles to to, to uh, engage in a battle for somebody other than they kiss and kin? Because they didn't like the the. Uh, they didn't like the Arabs, or they didn't like the uh, 
doggone what we call them. Help me out. All right, let's get the doctor. Eurasian, Eurasians. They were the totally Indians. against them. The, the area. Let's get the doctor response. Yeah. Listen, listen. Um, there is a there is a wonderful book called um, The Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire, written by Drusilla Dungey Houston. I would urge everyone to read this book to understand the context of what we're talking about right now. Essentially, what is happening, we have a cosmology of an Aryan origin coming against a cosmology of an African origin. So um, it was the domination of the Aryan, these people that we want to call uh, Arab or Semitic or so forth, these were people who have an Aryan um, origin. And the Aryan origin is coming in contact with the Ethiopian or Kushite origin. And this is the, um, this is the dynamic of the conflict that we see happening anciently, and it's still, playing, it's still being played out today. When Augustus came down and tried to do the same thing, bringing Christianity, they fought Augustus off. And they had a truce meeting with him on the island, I believe the island was Tari. And the, the Kadaki sent a contingent of adverse, a contingent of a committee, a contingent of peacekeepers, and they had a bundle of arrows. And they presented Augustus with the arrows, and, he, and they told him that they was bringing this offering peace. If you don't want peace, you're going to need these arrows. Then they fought off Islam for almost 1,800 years. The That's spread right. of Islam into so That's right. when people say that black folks, uh, and I'm talking not black, I'm talking about African people, they did not want these foreign ideologies because they had their own. Okay, very well. Um, is the other gentleman there? Uh, I'm Roddy. I just wanted to talk about uh, the Egypt and its place in black history. When I look at the, and particularly the Bible. To understand Egypt, Egypt is a very uh, complex place, and if black people want to understand dynasties and kings, a good place to read and understand the kings and, and the dynasty of Egypt is if you look at the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus shows that before this new king that came in that was foreign to the Egypt land from the Hittites, which was from Asia, the Assyrians that, you, that we talked about, the Egypt before that was very, very friendly to Abraham, to Jacob, to Jesus. They even even kept him from being being slaughtered by Herod. So Egypt was it was a great supporter of many people of the Israelite faith and to Jesus and Christian Christians. As a matter of fact, that Jesus he found refuge in, in Egypt. The establishment came in that they started taking on this trade type sense with other other such as the Roman Empire and all, that eventually it caused it, that empire to go into its demise because they, they can't even become an, um, to the point where they they started taking, you know, slaves from, from Ethiopia, you know, and it was not a friendly type of empire that, that, that existed when they actually went to the, went against the, as, they, as the Bible says, in Exodus, when they didn't know Joseph. 
So, you know, these things about the, the empire of Egypt, uh, you know, we, we have to be very careful on what we want. We want to look to ourselves as being kings, but, you know, there is no, there is no crime or association with the, that black people are in today because of Christianity or, or Judaism or anything. It's strictly because of, you know, our willingness to, to follow material things, such as we want to prescribe to be part of Egypt because only because of kings. And Egypt has not always been kings or Ethiopia, and it has been primitive lands, and those times we don't prescribe to be those people, and we embarrass to be those people. So we want to subscribe to everything that's kings. As brothers, well, so, you know, yeah. if, I, I, I I could, if I could ask that in a polite way, and I'm going to say this, there's no flood story, there's no Adam and Eve story, there's no Jesus story, there's no Exodus story that can stand up against the history of black African people. Before them, there was none, and after them, it was them. I'm just sorry. From earth history, I'm not talking about Bible history, I'm talking about earth history. No other can stand up against their story. Their story sets the foundation for every other story, just as if the people on this station was deciding to build an automobile tomorrow. Well, we wouldn't go back to a Model A Ford. We will build and improve off of what we have today. The Lincolns, the Cadillacs, and the Summers, and so on and so on. So, I'm just, other ethnic groups just did not have it going on like the people in Nile Valley did. May they I, didn't uh, build. Uh, I'm just, you know, if, you know, this Nile Valley was so great, you know, you know, anything that's great, you know, I would, I would have to say it has to withstand time. But somehow this, this so-called, this great Nile Valley, it came to its demise, you know, and all of its greatness, you know. What caused this affluent, well, very established society of great scholars and everything else that you subscribe to, what caused your demise? The United States is only, what, 250 years old? We're talking about civilizations that existed for over, you know, I've been on excavations that was dated 55 to 65,000 years ago. There's no other history like that. It got old. When Pianchi in the 7th century defeated and, and conquered what they call Lower Nile Valley, or was Alexander, in Avaris, he conquered and left because it was so cosmopolitan, it was had no resemblance of what his ancestors had put in place, that he left it alone and went back down to the south. So things change. Blacks today in America is not the same as the blacks that was during the time of Marcus Garvey, nor before him, during the time of Kali House, the sister who had a larger organization than Marcus Garvey, and when she tried to have the uh, p- try to get a pension for the slaves, 
Her organization was over 400,000. So when Marcus Garvey came on, his organization was about 250,000. When Elijah Muhammad came on with the Nation of Islam, his organization was 200,000. So what do we have today? So things come and things go. But no other civilization have ever lasted the times of that Akemet. This is Leslie Gist, and we do have a caller, 224. Are you on the line? Um, in response to the last caller, though, that was um, interesting to hear, I suppose. The sense that um, great things don't end is wrong. Um, I think that much of the history of black culture, the, the fact that it has survived as long as that we remember it now is a testament to how great it was. Because we've gone for a long time, generations, in which people have tried to systematically destroy this stuff. And part of it is still intact. I mean, understand Rome literally conquered the world and it ended. I mean, being great doesn't necessarily mean something's going to survive. The closest thing we have to anything like that is, what, China over 2,000 years? That's the, that's the exception to the rule. In regard to the, the, the last call, the comment that he was making with regard to um, our understanding of history with regard to the Bible. Scholar, I have a master's degree in Jewish studies. And my, and my major, my concentration was in Bible and Hebrew language, biblical Hebrew. It's not a book of science. It is not a book of anthropology. The Bible is a, is a document that was created by the Jewish people about the Jewish people and for the Jewish people that gives them a cosmology that identifies or gives them a place of how they see themselves in the world. When we look at Africa and we look at the Bible, there is no compatibility. There is no congruency. The, the Bible is a patriarchal cosmology. In fact, any book, what I call the book religions, religion that comes from a book, but I'll, let me, let me um, um, bring it just to the Abrahamic religions, that of, of uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. I refer to these as the book religions. Africa never had a book religion. The book religions are a foreign imposition upon African cosmology. When you think about how we as an African people became Muslims, how we became um, Jews, or how we became Christians, it was a result of foreign intervention. Because Africans have always known God. Africans have always had a culture. They never had to understand God from reading a book. They never had to understand how to uh, understand their place in the world from reading the book. The only book that Africans had was the book of nature. So when we look at that, when we look at Christianity, see, we, our understanding of history has been um, founded upon the concept of what I call white supremacy or the Western Academy. The Western Academy, the halls of academia, are based upon their library. And when these halls of academia, these halls of scholarship were formed, they were formed from this library. The very first book that was ever published in the Western world 
that became the foundation of uh, uh, scholarship, Western scholarship, was the Bible. All of these institutions of learning were based upon the biblical view. So we have our understanding about the world from the biblical view. We understand how the nations were spread abroad from the Genesis story. We understand the creation of man from the Genesis story. These things are not facts. They are not factual. So when we understand history from the point of view of the Bible, we are imbibing a foreign ideology that is un-African and that I would, wage, that I would say would be anti-African. Our introduction to Christianity was from the point of view of oppression. We became Christians. We became Christians when we were taken from the shores of Africa and brought to the shores of America. And that is where our biblical experience begins. The African biblical experience begins with colonization. So we have to okay. be very careful. We have to be very careful how we conceptualize our understanding it, of history and of the world when we start engaging the Bible. And, and if I could add to that, if people remember Roots, the movie, see, uh, Stanley and Livingston had not worked their way down into West Africa until in the 1800s, late 1800s. The, this captive that was brought here was following two paradigms. One, tradition, and two, Mohammedism. And if you look at Roots, Kuta Kente called upon Allah. He was recently captured. Fittler, who was born in slavery, was following, you know, the Bible. So, I mean, that's yeah, just as obvious as one can get. So, now, well, I, it's unfortunate, I wanted to say, it's unfortunate, unfortunately, that, that man has to have conquest, and there's always constant conflict and battles between people and humanity. But what we have to understand is, like, I have to attribute today that my conversation with you and many others today, that our survival has been strictly because of our faith in Christ. Christ has brought us to the point where we have a liberation, and when you speak about, you know, the African in nature and what we learn oppression has made us have a religion of books, Christ did not ordain us to read a book. Christ is not a book. Christ, as a matter of fact, came to to abolish the law. He didn't, he didn't want any of the Ten Commandments. He said the only commandment that you will buy to, obliged to follow is that you're law. Talking and that's you're, talk, you're talking religion. No, that's not religion, no, Matt. That's not religion. That's not history, sir. How is it that the Kushites control those areas? They won battle after battle, and their deity was Amun. It was not no Christ. You can come down through history and you can see where the whole concept of Christ is started off with the Ptolemies, with Serapis, because they wanted to be a god. It goes on into the Council of Nicaea with, with uh, what's his name? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is an avatar. Let me just tell, tell you this. This show is being produced in the name of Christ. Only because of Christ am I investing, I'm investing my time and energy and money in the name of Christ. The name of the show is the gist of freedom is still faith. 
and faith comes I understand that. And that's the I understand that, man, but here's one point you forget to believe. All black people in America are not the same. And they don't have to be. And, and I, so I, my family, I, my family don't believe in Christ. We never have no need Christ. But, but let, let me, me just say, as Christians, we respect all religions. We believe that as long as you are in sync with me and you're looking for the better good, then you're more of a Christian than an atheist or anyone else that claims not to. In regard to the, the, the last call, the comment that he was making with regard to um, our understanding of history with regard to the Bible. Scholar, I have a master's degree in Jewish studies, and my, and my major, my concentration was in Bible and Hebrew language, biblical Hebrew. It's not a book of science. It is not a book of anthropology. The Bible is a, is a document that was created by the Jewish people about the Jewish people and for the Jewish people that gives them a cosmology that identifies or gives them a place of how they see themselves in the world. When we look... Almost every liberator or revolutionary used the Bible, starting with, not starting with, but for example, with Moses as inherited husband. He did a very poor job of using Christianity in the Bible because it was those people who were inspired, Nat Turner and the likes, by the Bible, used their Bible to free the blacks today. Not back in the, in the 5th century or B.C., but the ones who were freed, my direct descendants who were freed from slavery, was freed because of that Bible and because we had some serious revolutionaries who used not only their African background, but was smart enough to use the Bible to free ourselves. So Well, Marcus Garvey didn't use it. Elijah no, Muhammad no, didn't use no, it. No, no, no. no, I'm talking, they were already freed by the blacks who already used the Bible. So they benefited from Martin Delaney, Martin Delaney didn't use it. Another thing, too, it's going to skip my mind. It just, it just did. But uh, we don't, we, you have to think about those things. They did, people did not use that. Some did, many didn't. But we have to understand why they were able to use the Bible as a tool of liberation. This is not the... Uh, How about the Haitians? The Haitians defeated Spain, Britain, and France. They used Voodoo. They didn't use the Bible. The first you know, time in history that an oppressed people do, defeated their courteous. slave masters. We have to be courteous in this, in this forum. In modern allow, history. We have to allow people to make their point without interruption. Yeah. We have to allow, we have to allow um, Ms. Jens to make her point without interruption. And we cannot, we cannot uh, bulldoze our, our opinion on this, uh, on this forum. I want to be able to contextualize what we are talking about when she makes the point about how our, our liberation, how part of our liberation was founded upon concepts that our ancestors, our slave ancestors used from the Bible. After all, the Bible was the only thing that we had available to us as to any type of knowledge, as to any type of religion, as to any type of uh, uh, literature, as to any type of... Uh, of any type of cosmology, that was the only thing we had. That what we were able to extract 
from our understanding of the Bible was our own innate Africanness, our own innate spirituality. We Africanized what we saw in the Bible, and we made it a tool of liberation. Because after all, you have to remember, the Bible was used as the tool of enslavement of African people. What was the difference between how the Bible was used as a tool of enslavement of African people and as a tool of liberation of African people? We have to understand the dynamic, the dynamic here. Can I, can, I, can I just can, can I, um, get in and yes, answer ma'am. that question? Um, yes. Well, the Bible was banned, like all other books, in the plantation. And you do know the quote from Frederick Douglass, which he said that any educated uh, educated slave won't make an uh, educated black or Negro won't make a good slave. So to say that the Bible was used, it was rote learning. The the so-called slave master lied about what the, the context the context of the Bible. He did not use the Bible in its truth to uh, subdue the slaves. So. For, for people to say, well, the Bible was used as if uh, as soon as slaves, uh, as soon as Africans arrived in this country, that they threw Bibles like Jehovah's and people out on the street missionaries at, at enslaved blacks as a way to say, today we're going to enslave you. I want each and every one of you to start reading the Bible. That is not the truth. They understood that if we knew the truth about God, period, I don't care what name you want to call him, but if we got a relationship with whatever God, and we we look to a higher power that they were in trouble. So I I don't I don't uh, ascribe to every religion or just Christianity. As a Christian, anyone who is doing the right thing, and they can call it under any name they want, is my brother. As Malcolm X says, if you are for justice and if you're for my cause, then we're all in the same boat. And I'm, I'm only summarizing it, but that's one of my favorite quotes um, from Malcolm X. He understood that this, this fight that we have is bigger than color, it's bigger than continent. It is something to do with the spirit within us who have like minds and who understand the struggle. And it, it has nothing to do with um, Africa or Europe. Um, we have good people and bad people from all over the world that we can that we choose to identify with. And the last thing I'll say about this is that um, we are not anti-Pan-Africanist uh, people. I think you can be a Christian and love Africa and your history as far as your African roots. You don't have to choose one or the other. In fact, my husband and I honeymooned in Egypt in 1994, and we love Africa. But we are still Christians, and we are um, not meek and humble. We chose Christianity. We have access to all sorts of religions, our friends with all types of people from every part of the world, and we respect that, and we believe that that all falls under God. And that's all I have to say about that. And I'm going to let you continue to speak may, may on I, what may you I have to say. Something. May I say something? Yes. May I say something? Um, let, yes. Me, let, me ask, let, me, let me point out some things here. And I'm speaking as a, uh, a Jewish scholar, one who is, who is a master of Jewish studies, one who understands the Bible from a Jewish point of view, not just from a Christian point of view, but from a Jewish point of view. The Bible's cosmology um, presents us with a story that says 
that man, a male, gave birth to a woman. That concept is anti-African. It is un-African. It is patriarchal. It is not only just that, but it is contrary to nature because a man, by any stretch of the imagination, cannot give birth to anything. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Bible institutionalizes slavery. The Torah not only regulates slavery, it commands slavery. I'm speaking as a Jewish scholar. So the Bible has been used to justify slavery because slavery is justified in the Bible. The Bible justifies genocide. The Bible justifies putting women down, making them unclean, making them second class, making them less than a man. What you see in the Bible is a conflict, is a documentation between the forces of patriarchy against the forces of matriarchy. That's what you see happening in the Bible. You have to, you have, I read the Bible, I read the Bible as literature. I read the Bible objectively. I don't read it as a book of history, a book of science, or a book of faith. I read it for what it is. And when you read it for what it is, you will see how it was very much used as an instrument of oppression of not just black people, but of people. Well, you know, Professor, if I could say something, the, the first five books, you have the first five books, then you have the Greeks that come in with the Septuagint and add on to them the, the other 534. Then, of course, then you got the New Testament. King James wrote the, the King James done his version because he wanted the, the Church of England to have its own Bible. Every institution has their own Bible. Going back to the Vulgate, so, but the first five books was created by that group of people for their deity, and he was not for all the world. He was for a particular people, and it says so in that. And that is, I mean, that's just the way it is. It was not for everybody, and people don't want to, I mean, just read it. It says. You're, 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 you're correct, because Jesus always said when, when, when someone came to be healed by him, he would say, you, it was by your faith that you were healed. He never said it was by the name of Christ you were healed or it was by Allah, but it was your faith. It was by your faith you are healed. Yahweh of the Bible said that Israel was my son and not 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 anybody else. And many times in there it says that he goes on. He was against race mixing. He was against homosexuality. He was against tattoos. You had to eat a certain way, eat a certain time. You had certain seasons. You had first fruits, which we call the day Kwanzaa. It was about a culture of a people right. that right. deified it and made it, and, and, and others would come in and make it a, a religion. You're right. And Jesus got killed because he broke all those laws. Right, right, no, right in this face. was before. He, he this was before, ma'am. Do you understand? Well, we you, that, can we understand that things come in a chron- chronological 
things come in a chronological point of view. Martin Luther, uh, Abraham Lincoln existed before Martin Luther King. I'm sorry. Right. Obama right. came before, after Martin Luther King. And, Je- so, and Jesus came after, after all those laws were put in place. Jesus came Jesus after was the 25th. Jesus was the 25th crucified Savior that the world has known. Before him, there was 24 others. There was a bunch of prophets that were that were that were. This that is were what I meant. Crucified. This is what I meant to your point. This is what I meant when I say that Jesus was an avatar. The, what we find that in the New Testament be avatar. was an avatar. In other words, the point that he makes about others having the same cosmological story um, throughout history is valid. You will find the very words. You will find the very words that Jesus used in the midst of the Greeks, in the midst of Africans, um, that have been taken word for word and put in the New Testament. But, that's what I'm saying. This is what when you read the early church fathers, when you read the early church fathers, when you read Augustine, when you read Cyprian, when you read um, Tertullian, when you read these people and what they have to say about Christianity, they say that. This religion that they call Christianity has been always known among Africans. It is not new. It has now come to us, and it's called Christianity. Because we find the Christ story in, in Egypt. We find right. the Christ story. We find the Christ Nobody story. In the- Yahweh in Amos 3 and 2 said, You only have I known of all the nations on the earth. Now, Yahweh was not the God of the Cushites. Black folks, I'm talking about, I'm not mean Africans. There's a difference between black and Africans. Yahweh was not the God, a deity of Africans. He was a deity of these this breakaway, radical, fringe group that created this deity for themselves. It was a point in time where he was a local God, a local deity of no importance whatsoever. Now you have what you have. Now, how do you explain you, it? No, no. If you study, if you study, if you study, uh, I would recommend. Listen, if you get, if you can get the book Eden and Summa on the Niger, it brings all these things together. It gives a perspective that we all need to have. The first thing is that the Nile River was not the origin of civilization of culture. It was the Niger. And when you understand the cosmology of the Niger people, of the of the African people, of the Sub-Saharan people. This is what you will discover. Our ancient ancestors were monotheists. We were the first monotheists. Monotheism did not begin with Abraham. Monotheism did not begin with uh, Moses. Monotheism did not begin with Muhammad. It did not begin with any of these uh, prophets or purveyors that we find in what we call the book religions. Monotheism was very ancient in Africa. We worshiped one God. But that God was not a man, was not a male. It was a mother God. The supreme God of the African people was a mother God. It was the earth. Uh, it was the cosmological vibration of the universe that was feminine. And when you study our ancient cosmology, when you study Eva, when you study Afa, when you study Ma'at, you find all this there. So we have to understand that patriarchy 
it's foreign to Africa, and the book religions are patriarchal. That's why they detest women. That's why they hate women. That's why you have misogynic uh, affirmations against women. This is why you uh, find me, all I, re- this is where you find in all religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the, the, the women being downtrodden. That's only one let thing. Me, I can go on other things. May I? Let go me ahead. say Yeah, let go me ahead, say sir. Something. Look, I understand that. I mean, I've read some books. I'm not a, I don't proclaim to be a scholar. I am somebody who has spiritually involved, and I'm so I, I will not I will not apologize for spiritually evolving because I think we all need to spiritually evolve. I am not a religious <laughs> person. I am a very spiritual person. That is a vast difference between a spiritual person and one that is religious. A religious person does not seek truth. A spiritual person is somebody that seeks truth in its whole mind. I read many books. And, and and pretty much, I've read the Arab and the, land, and the uh, Jew in the land of Canaan, you know, and I've read the Quran to some point. I've know some parts of Buddhism. I've sought religion in many forms to bring peace to my life, and only peace that I found, and I'm glad that I found it, was in Christ. And when I read the story of um, John 4:11. It's one of the most profound books and uh, stories in the book because it addresses these things that we're talking about now when you talk about Mother Earth and, and Africa. I have no problem describing this saying African religions. I have friends. But what Jesus says to this, this, um, this, um, this, this lady, basically, she, she comes to him, and she's of a certain faith, and Jesus asks her to bring this water. So the whole story comes out that says that, Jesus says that a time has come where people will no longer worship on this mountain, on this building, but they will worship God in spirit and truth. And that is the truth that I look to seek at. And that's what I like about Jesus because Wait. he is not a faith. He is not a person. He is, the, he is a truth. The truth. If what you're saying and you believe in your heart is the truth, then it is your truth. I don't have to agree with it for it to be your truth, your experience in the walk that you're taking and and you're marketing. So the truth is um is based on your experiences and we just have to respect that as human beings that what you see in your perspective from Einstein said everything is relativity, it's your truth. And I think God, whatever God we want to call him, is appreciative that we are speaking what we believe in our heart is to be the truth. And for the people who are listening if they get any ounce of this truth, then all of our God be with all of us for being courageous and respectfully sharing what we believe is our troops. And that's what I have to say about that. And you could continue. May I, say uh, I just want to, I just want okay. to quote Deuteronomy seven and six real quick, and I'm gonna have to go. Okay. Deuteronomy seven and six says, "For you are a holy, to you are holy to the Lord." Your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. That right there is a particular people, a particular God for a particular people created by a particular people. Historically, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And things will begin off of that. Now, the lady I, I appreciate and, and I respect people, you know, especially in the United States. We live in America. The Constitution of the United States protects you to have whatever belief system, whatever religion that you want to have. 
It protects governments from coming against you, whether federal, local, or state. And that's, I mean, that's just the way it is. The Constitution is the supreme law of this land, and your feelings, your beliefs, I respect because you're a citizen. My feelings, my not believing, I hope that you respect me because I'm a citizen also. May I say something else? May I say something else? I want to say something about Jesus Christ. But before I do, I want to make sure that there's no other people there that have questions or other comments because we've been dominating this discussion. No, I no, want no to, one's on I want the line. Make, no one's on the line. Okay, very good. Let me say something about um, what you're saying about Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why we see the conflict that Jesus is having with uh, those that he is in conflict with, those that are against him, is because he is announcing a matriarchal view, a spiritual view that is matriarchal. He uses, he uses stories about nature to illustrate truth. He illustrates stories about the earth to illustrate truth. I have nothing against Jesus as the avatar, everything that Jesus is, I am. Everything that Jesus says, I say. Everything that Jesus believes, I believe. I have the religion of Jesus. I don't have a religion about Jesus. And this is where we have to make the distinction when we look at Christianity. Because the Bible is an invention of Christianity. You're going to have to come to that understanding that the Bible is an invented book, invented by Christianity. It was canonized by the Catholic Church, and what we understand as Christianity today is an invention. Mm-hmm. And it has been used. It has been used as a tool of oppression. Now we have to separate the the the, the spirituality of Jesus from the Christianity that is being taught in the New Testament. They're not the same. So when right. you look, at, You're right about when that. you look. When you look at Christ, when you look at Jesus as a spiritual being, as a that's why I call him an avatar because the same thing that Jesus teaches is the same moral principles that we find in African cosmology. We find all this in Egyptian uh, spirituality. We find this in Ifa. We find this in Afa. We find this in what we call Voodoo. All these things are found, all the things and all the principles of Jesus is found in African spirituality. So when we look at Jesus, this is why I say he's an avatar. I don't put him down. I don't denounce him. I embrace him. I lift him up. If we can separate him from the Judaism that has been, uh, that has come to define him as a religionist. He was not a religionist. If we can seek to define him apart from Christianity or Christians, because he was not a Christian. Right, you're right. I'm also a Jewish reader of the New Testament, so I understand the New Testament a lot differently than most Christians and even most Jews, because I read the Bible historical critically. I read it as literature. I understand how the Bible was formed. I understand the history of how it was created and how the books were put together. I understand why some books were picked and some books were not picked to be a part of the canon. You have to understand all these things when you start talking about Christianity and when you start talking about Jesus. You cannot lump them all together. You have to understand them contextually. 
You have to understand the cosmology. So when it comes to understanding Jesus, uh, I'm all for that. I'm all for Jesus. I, you know, even as a <laughs> Jew, even the Jewish people will accept Jesus as our son. He is the son of the Jewish people because everything he talks about is basically um, Jewish spirituality. Mm-hmm. There's no separation between what Jesus says and Judaism as a spiritual concept. But when mm-hmm. we stop making it a political argument, there is where we get in trouble because the New Testament has been used as a political, a political argument against Jewish tradition, what we understand as Jewish tradition or what we understand as rabbinic Judaism. And I'm glad you're making that distinction um, by saying the New Testament because That's we all right. understand that the, the New Testament and the Old Testament um, are totally different and and they are not the same and they um, they oppose one another. So I well, think these concepts, great, these concepts great. were omitted. These concepts of testament and these mm-hmm. concepts of old and new are Christian or religious inventions. Mm-hmm. And, and old and new is a part of how we evolve. And, and you know, as, as you said, it's a book of literature, and the Bible gives you a chance to take a look at your life and to find the people who are within the Bible and to see how they relate to what's happening to you today. Like the Constitution, which you alluded to earlier, the Bible is a living book. It didn't stop at the end of Revelation. We are continuing to write the book of the Bible as we speak today. And if you don't understand that, then you really don't understand Christianity in its fullness. We are continuing this story. The Bible is just someone's version of what they saw happening at that time, when we see Malcolm get killed, when we see Martin Luther uh, get assassinated, these are all stories that are all part of the Bible. Although we don't think that we are as equal to all the people that have been placed in the Bible, our God looks at us as if we are equal to all those people you said did not exist, and it, it's not true, and it was so many mouths, and it wasn't this mouth, or, or it, was, it was called this at this time in the world. Someone's going to say the same thing about us long after we're dead. And they're going to say, well, he never got on a blog talk radio show and spoke because he must have been on at 9, 9.30 a.m. So someone's going to doubt what we're doing right now. But hopefully um, what, when we are long gone, our words and our truth will inspire and live eternally in those who are seeking the truth and are inspired by what we are doing today. So the Bible, we are all part of the Bible. If we are working for the good of God, then we are part of the story. And you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question. First of all, I want to make sure there's nobody nobody in queue that has a comment or a question apart from anyone that is. Block block Talk um, disabled that because we're we're past the scheduled time. So no one else can close the book. Go ahead. Let me ask you this question. I want to ask you this question, and I hope that maybe some others are listening. When, when the missionaries bought the Bible to our ancestors in Africa, mm-hmm. was that a good thing? Was that a better thing than what they had before the Bible was bought to them? Or was it a bad okay, thing? Okay, I'm going to tell oh. you from the biblical – I'm going to answer your question from a biblical um, point of view. Um, this question was – 
Build from a historical well, point of view. Well, I, I, I'm, mostly everything I know about the Bible didn't come from me reading the Bible first. I was told the truth by my own experience and was able to find out that my experience is very similar to what the stories are in the Bible. So I'm not a biblical scholar, but I do go to the Bible um, whenever I need help. But I'll tell you this much. Um, there was an argument in the Bible where the disciples were saying, um, I was able to recruit so many believers versus so-and-so. And then they were saying, well, there's some phonies out there that are preaching Christ too. And um, Paul told them it doesn't matter. As long as Christ is being spoken and the word is getting out, let them say it with any negative intentions. But the word of Christ, the truth, the truth is what is so powerful. No one can block or separate the truth from God's people. When you are seeking the truth, but first, first off, the people who are listening have to want the truth. So the hearers will understand the truth. If it's being told by a liar, if it's being told by the KKK, if, if it's being told by the Tea Partier, if somebody is seeking truth and they're trying to get out of the situation, the devil, I don't care what form he's coming in, if he and somebody is desperately looking for it, it's going to benefit that hearer. So we don't have to um, say uh, the people who are desperate, the people who are in despair, who are crying right now, looking for an answer out. They don't care if the person that brings the truth that is trying to save them from drowning is coming in the name of Buddha, Allah, Christ. If they're being saved and rescued, they're going to praise the one who helped um, relieve them. So that is a story that I've learned through the Bible. I wasn't raised in in a church. But I know from my own personal experience, when I was in despair, the person who came to help me came in the name of Christ. So I owe it to Christ to say, this is, this is who brought me out of my situation. So I'm not going to fault anybody that says, well, you know what? I was in a very similar situation of despair, but the person who saved me said, he came in the name of Allah. I'm going to say, I'm just happy we all free, and we all can continue to liberate other people. I'm not going to dispute and sit down and argue with anybody about how to rescue my brothers from bondage. If you want to come in in any name, as long as we get these people free, that's all I care about. You don't have to be from, from Patterson or New York or from Brooklyn. I don't have time. My people, we don't have time to be separating each other and saying we have to uh, come into agreement of how we came to this freedom before we can rescue the people that we see are dying. We have to okay. keep moving I, and, I and rescue point, people. And I, I, and I think, uh, I, and I, 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 I'm not going to dispute anything you said, but I want to okay. ask you this. I want to ask you this. Did, did the African, before the missionaries came, before the English came, before the Arabs came, did our ancestors have the truth, or did the Bible give them the truth? Well, let me say this. I will answer that. I will say from my friend Omar Mecca, who taught me the same question when I read the, the book and I talked about Jews and the Palestinians and the Arab in the land and the Jew in the land of Canaan, that he told me that he had no part in any of those religions. He said when we were Africans, we had our own religion. 
And that was the first time I understood that Africans really didn't have these religions that I know today and that the Arabs know today. It was we had these things that we worshiped dolls and all this other stuff, and we were living in peace. But unfortunately, as he said, the desert raiders came across, and we had to become these particular religions as we call them today. And and the last thing I'll tell you, I have a scholar that I'm trying to get on, and he has an excellent page. He's on Facebook. His name is Emmett, E-N-M-E-T. He talks about Christianity, and it's a different term that he uses, in Ethiopia. And he talks about how Ethiopia is the last standing um, country in Africa um, that was not colonized, and he gives credit to this form of Christianity. So um, I don't profess in talking about logistics about Christianity, but if my audience, if my listeners want to go there and talk about the logistics, if they get any form of truth, again, my mission is accomplished. Because the truth is going to set them free. The truth that they're looking well, for, you know, it may not be my truth, but it might be somebody but, else. But you, you haven't that. addressed my question. You haven't answered it. Has it benefited Africans? The, the no, no, Africans? no. I didn't ask. You, I didn't ask you that. I didn't ask you that. Okay, say it again. I'm asking. I'm asking that before the introduction of four religions, before the mm-hmm. and let me say that Africans never believed in a religion. Our mm-hmm. ancestors did not believe in any religion. But before the introduction of religion to Africans through the book religion, so through the book uh, mm-hmm. missionary, beginning with uh, whether you call them Christians, Jews, or, or, or Islam, before the introduction mm-hmm. of these foreign ideas, these ideas from outside of Africa, before they came to Africa, did our ancestors have the truth? Or did the Bible give them the truth? I think we've, we've always had a truth, and I'm not just going to say um, Africans. I think human beings. No, we're talking about our okay, well, We're talking about our people. I, I'm, I'm, I'm only 46 years old, and I really don't know about what went on in Africa before these missionaries, but I believe that the truth was in everyone. And as in, in, in the case of all people, if you want the truth and you really go out and you seek it, you seek it, as Frederick Douglass said, with your feet, not just by prayer, but when you start moving your feet, then you can, then, yes, it benefited you. The truth. Hey, uh, Professor. Yeah, come here. Go ahead, ma'am. What about the, you know, the, the recent discovery of the Jarawa, Jarawa people on the Adamant Islands I know who presently about. have the oldest genes, unadulterated genes, on the planet. They true. never heard about these stories. That's not true, but go ahead. I'm, on, I'm listening. Well, they they do not. They, they have never. They have never heard of no Adam and Eve stories. No flood story. Is what I'm getting at. You're talking about is a Sumerian invention. That's Sumerian um, cosmology that you're talking about. That's why they never heard about it because it's patriarchal. Why is yeah. it so detrimental for someone to hear those stories? And if you know, because why it goes against their history. It adulterates so, I, I, our history. I, I would, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say it's detrimental. I'm, I'm going to say that it is un-African. It is anti-African. Okay. I'm not going to say it's and detrimental. What, I'm, I'm, I'm just okay. saying it doesn't belong to Africa. Okay. All right. So what, and I'm, what, and I'm saying that I'm saying that the African cosmology is superior to the patriarchal cosmology. 
So I'm not trying to yes. say that, um, you know, that it's something that, um, you know, I'm not going to try to. It's good for whoever it belongs to. It mm-hmm. doesn't belong to I understand. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to Africans. It doesn't belong to an African people. The, the truth and the cosmology of Africa is much far superior than the book, uh, than the book religions or the book cosmologies or the Aryan cosmology or the Sumerian, the Sumerian cosmology that we find that is and, and that's because they got theirs out of it. I mean, have you ever read the 42 negative confessions? Within yes. the 42 negative confessions, you find the Ten Commandments. The, right. priest in, the priest in the temple, if it's a soot or a waset, they recited the 42 negative confessions five times a day. Yes. Where Muslims yes. pray five times a day. That's so right. you see where, where these different ethnic, and there's nothing wrong with that. No. They have a right to create a God, a religion for themselves. Yes. The problem is when you go around the world and telling other ethnic, other societies that what you're doing is wrong, and now you have to follow this. That's where the problem comes in. There you go. There you go. That's the okay. basic problem. So wait, let, now, me say, let, me, let, me, let me say something okay. to the point about uh, he mentioned the Adaman Pygmies, the Adaman Pygmies, who, have, who, are the, who are truly one of the um, uh, oldest um, um, people groups on the planet. He's true. That's true. But the old, if you want to know who has the oldest DNA, if you want to know who has the oldest DNA and where that oldest DNA is located, I'm going to recommend that you uh, look in the book, Eden is Summa on the Niger, and you will find that answer there. And we give the proof. We don't give a theory. We don't give a hypothesis. We give, the, we give empirical evidence. Okay, I just want to ask the gentleman why why are you so afraid of these stories? I'm not afraid to to hear a story about Buddha, about Islam. I, I you know most Christians aren't. We you know we don't have a problem well, with listening to your story. But why is it that on the flip side that everyone has a problem with our story? Well, what's in your story? I don't have a problem with it, but I know that it is not the first story of those particular events. The goddess Mutt came on her menstrual period and flooded the land was the first story about a flood. So that's the only... That's the only problem. I, the problem I have is when they plagiarize the history of Africa, like I mentioned about Second Kings 19 and 35, and there's many of them. When they plagiarize science, like saying that the whole world was covered in water, which is, is not true, and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. That's, the only, that's, that's one of the problems I have. So when you see someone that's, that's into these flood stories and into these Adam and Eve stories, is there a way that you know that, wow, this person has been told uh, as believing in Adam and Eve or the flood story? What is it, you know, that really bothers your psyche, your spirit, when you see someone who is embracing these stories? How is it affecting you personally? And how do you think... Well, it's human nature. Stories away? Human like beings have weakness. I would like to address that as well when you're finished. Go ahead. Human yeah, beings, human beings have. It's natural for human beings to have fear and weakness. Human mm-hmm. beings, see, it's nothing. Human beings cannot fathom that when you die, that's it, you're gone. So when you hear, you know, Christianity has three tenets 
that they stands on. It stands on the Immaculate Conception and uh, the Annunciation Immaculate Conception. It stands on the uh, dog doing it. What is well, Lord, Professor Him? While you're thinking about that, my grandmother was an evangelist, and she couldn't tell you any of these things that you're talking about Christianity standing on any of it. But you know, I'm just curious if you see these things. Well, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church created those things. It stands on the, the Annunciation Immaculate Conception. It stands on the Crucifixion, and it stands on the Resurrection. Those three things is what Christianity stands on. You snatch one right. of those out, and it falls flat on its face. Okay. Asar those, was resurrected. Those ideas, I just, those ideas don't begin with Christianity. Those no, they don't. Went, I, um, go ahead. I just want to address your answer. Uh, it's not, it's not that, uh, personally, I'm not afraid of them, um, mm-hmm. but, I, but I know their origin, and I know mm-hmm. why they became stories. And I know, of the, and I know the intent of what it was supposed to do um, mm-hmm. to, those, to those who were to engage and to embrace these stories. Now, there is, you know, you know, we uh, the Jewish people look at the Bible, and they look, they're the ones who wrote the Bible. Let's um, admit this: it's written in the Hebrew language. They invented it, and they invented it from their own cosmology. So we have to recognize that it is a Jewish story. It is not a human story. It is a Jewish no. story about humanity. It is not a human okay. story. I- it is not the story I, I, of humanity. It is a Jewish story of humanity. Okay. Now, let me just bring this to you because uh, this is this is a great conversation, and I've always asked uh, several different Pan-Africans the same questions I'm asking you. Most times they hang up by now. So I really want to applaud you for staying online and, and really hashing this out. Now, we had a guest on earlier who talked about restoring some of our HBCUs, and these are HBCUs prior to BCUs that were established after the Civil War. These HBCUs that were established for us, by us, mainly by AME um, ministers, um, and who, straight out of Africa, refused to give up their connection to Africa by calling their churches African Methodist Episcopal. This is Richard Allen I'm talking about in Philadelphia, who understood the concept of Christianity was I am my brother's keeper, and he was the first one to start the Mutual Aid Society. So when we look at the original HBCUs who had the most progress in any era of African-American history, and when you look at our progress and how we came out of slavery, these men with one shackle on their ankles, who could have reverted back to their African religion, but instead chose to start their own religion under the name of Christ when they had a choice as free men in Philadelphia. They could have done anything they wanted to as free men. And they got sued. They were sued by the white establishment for wanting to name their institution American, African Methodist Episcopal. They got sued by the white establishment for wanting to start the Mutual Aid Society. So when we look at this era, and this is how I, this is how I teach myself, what works, and we're both um, electric, electronic teachers and he's an engineer, 
at things from a troubleshooting technical perspective. What works, what didn't work, and we want to compare. So we look at that period of history and we say, boy, we made all this progress. We had schools. We had um, businesses. We were doing things. We had things going on. What was the center of our community and our culture? And when because you're American. Have you ever been to New Bethel Church in Philadelphia? I'm going to just tell you where I just left yesterday. I just left a school that was built by an enslaved minister in the center of the campus, the 400-acre campus, was something they built was a temple, a church. And the center of their schools was the Bible. Now, when we look at um, the white HBCUs, they took the Bible out and replaced it with the American flag and with all of these logistics. And they took out the stories, these myth stories that you claim that are so powerful that they, they really enslaved us. The first thing the white establishment did when we were free to say, we found out how these Negroes got free, and it had a lot to do with this so-called slave religion. So the first thing we're going to say is we're going to institute Darwinism and say, you came from a monkey, and this Adam and Eve story is a hoax. Don't ever believe in Adam and Eve. Don't ever put Adam and Eve or the flood story back in your school. Now we look at today, and we have young men with their pants sagging because we took out all religion, and now we have no morals, no compass, as Henry Clark, you mentioned earlier. He has a quote about compass in history. So I don't know if your religion and your intellect is going to um, bring black folks out of the, the dire um, position we're in right now, or I don't know if, if it's going to be morality through some religion, which was the center of our culture when we were straight out of slavery. So you can address that. I want to know what what are you going to replace these Adam and Eve stories with, and what is your experience? And you give me your track record of your your um, position. How has it worked in the past? Let me well, know, let me I answer that real you. quick for you. You mentioned you. Richard Allen started that church because whites were not. Uh, they would not. Uh, what do they call it when you when you start something? Are they franchises? I can't think of the name of it. But the whites would not give them the permission to start their own. And another thing is, it's a mutual aid society. You, it was a mutual aid society. They wanted to. Well, uh, it wasn't aid. sanctioned. What they wanted to do, they would not sanction. Just like you never see any black First Baptist Church. They always Third Baptist Church. But if you go to Bethel, New Bethel Church there in Philadelphia today. You'll see pictures on the wall where Richard Allen had his congregation segregated. He had the light-skinned blacks in the front and the dark-skinned blacks seated in the back. Now, why he done that, you know, is, is people can speculate. Now, black people have well, done marvelous things. You, before you continue, let me just say this. Richard Allen's granddaughter, Yvonne Sutherland, was at one of my – uh, panel discussions in Philadelphia, and she was on the panel of a film called The Contradictions of Fear Hope, and that movie was by Pepper Merkelson. And so when you talk about her great-grandfather, I, I'm going to save this so that she can address these questions because this show is about primary um, resources and about the truth. So when we say these things, I'm an educator, and I want to make sure it is the absolute truth because not only am I an educator, I'm, I'm a Christian. 
So you can continue well, the story about him. You can you can go. Yeah, right. the, the pictures are on the wall there in the New Bethel Church there in in uh, Philadelphia. Another thing. It's called Mother Bethel. It's called Mother Bethel, not New Bethel. Well, well, on the sign outside it says New Bethel, but Africans had the universities where you had to go to school for forty years. No other place had that. Hebrews didn't have no schools. Jews didn't have any schools. You had universities back then that that consist of 80,000. Matter of fact, they're still there today. You can still see the remnants of those places. Here in America, blacks who do not follow Christianity, like the Council of Independent Black Institutions, that, that, that created the, the educational schools that they did coming out of the Black Power Movement when uh, you had blacks sitting in the universities out in California boycotting and protesting that they wanted black studies and they wanted black teachers teaching them. And out of that came the independent black institutions, and some of them still exist today. So blacks mm-hmm. have done a lot of things void of having Christianity as its base. There's nothing wrong for for those. I've seen uh, schools closed down here left and right. I just want to say a little bit before I leave with regard to what what we're doing, what we're talking about. First of all, I want to commend you for what you're doing. Um, I highly recommend and I endorse what what we are attempting to do, and that is we are attempting to create a, a dialectic between mm-hmm. our, present, our present experience and our ontological origins as an African people. I, I, mm-hmm. I am coming from an, a pre-history perspective of our people, and I'm, I am advocating a dialectic between our native um, spirituality as a po- uh, uh, in comparison to where we find ourselves as an African people now. I encourage this dialectic, and I, I, I want to applaud you for having a program that allows this dialectic to, um, um, to, be, in, to be in place. There are many Thank things you. that, there are many things, uh, that you have said that need to be put in context. We can't deny right. the, we cannot deny the history. Of our people, we cannot deny how Christianity has pre- that Jesus, if I may, if I may <laughs> say so, that Jesus has played in preserving our life. You might want to say, Jesus has, mm-hmm. has Jesus Jesus has a strong tradition within our slave experience that has enabled us to survive our slave experience. So I'm not going to condemn wholesale our experience. <laughs> our religious experience. But I will say this. Africans are not religious by nature. The Uh reason why we as a people have survived to this point is not because of our religion or not because we are religious. It's because of our spirituality. We are Uh a spiritual people. We are a spiritual people. Uh We have been able to extract a spirituality from the Bible. What we have actually done, we have Africanized the Bible, and that is what gives the Bible relevance to us as a people. So I want to encourage this dialogue. I want to see you invite people such as the gentleman here or myself who can sort of put in context. I'm not here to downplay or to 
criticize or to, uh, um, you know, um, you know, demonize right. anybody or what they believe. Right. But I believe right. that there has to be a contextualization. There has to be a, there's a, there has to be a perspective to put it all, um, you know, how we how how it plays in the broad spectrum of things when we talk about our our, our ourselves as African people. Because where we right. see ourselves as African people is not one that is very um, endearing. It's not something that I, I'm not satisfied with our with our position in the world as an African people. I mm-hmm. see that an African Renaissance is taking place. I see what we're doing right now is part of the African Renaissance. And you know, it took me a long time to reach the position in my mind, in my spirituality, in my journey where I see myself now, because I understand everything that you're saying, Miss um, um, Jess. And, uh, yeah, I understand everything you're saying, because I was there at one time. I know what you're talking about. I understand this. Uh-huh. And my people uh-huh. are still there. My people are still there. And I'm uh-huh. trying to reach them with a perspective that will help them understand why we are where we are now. What uh-huh. effect? What effect has religion had upon our psyche, upon our people, upon Africa. When we look at Africa today, especially Nigeria, we uh-huh. see what is happening there. It's religion that has done that to our people. Right. Religion has, religion has done that to our people. Before the white man came with his missionaries, there was no rape. Rape, there's uh-huh. no word for rape in, 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 in indigenous African uh, languages. There's no word for it. There were no prisons. There were no jails before they came. What kind of spirituality did they have that enabled them to have such a thing? Our people were not were not idolaters. Uh-huh. We didn't worship idols. That is a that is a uh, a, a pejorative uh, epithet that is applied to African spirituality that they call animism, that they call uh, fetish fetishism. We have a view about our past. We have a view about our people. We have a view about ourselves that has been informed by white supremacy. That's what we have to understand. And the you're, Bible you're, everything you're saying is, is on the, point. The I Bible has been one of the major uh, organs that have been used um, to perpetuate what we see happening in Africa today and what we see as part of the confusion of our people uh, uh, in the world today. So I, all I'm saying is that we need to contextualize that. I hope that... And before you thing, go, Doctor... You also I hope got to will continue, and I want to I want to applaud you for what you're doing, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to come and to share with you the perspective that, the perspective that I have, and I hope that and we will another, have you back on. We will definitely thank you very much. Have you back on, I, and the two of you, we will have you on. Thank you, and I'm so sorry I kept I, you so long, but you you really brought forth a lot of knowledge, and um, you brought us to our book. We will be studying. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you know, the one thing I wanted to mention, we didn't didn't even get into the Arab slave trade, which existed almost 800 years before the transatlantic slave trade, or should you say the Christian slave trade. And there was no Bible. It was no Bible in those lands, like Basra in Iraq and so on and so on and so on. And one other thing I want to make a point. You can go into Ethiopia today in Gondor, where the quote-unquote better Israel, and I can tell you the story of how they got there. Matter of fact, they're products of the 25th Dynasty. And they only go by the first five books. They do not go by the rest of it. They tell you that today. So 
they have to be one has to ask themselves why is this and nobody asked that question. So anyway, I really appreciate your time and the efforts and the things that the, both of you contribute, and I respect you. And, uh, you know, may we have this conversation sometime in the future again. And please tune yes. in.